Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Detroit-based percussionist Carl Butch Small, who for more than four decades has added his special flavor to funk, soul, and rap recordings by a host of genre stars. Most notably, he worked with George Clinton and P-Funk during the late 1970s and early 1980s, performing on albums by Parliament, Bootsy's Rubber Band, Parlette, Brides of Funkenstein, Sweatband, and The Horny Horns. Among the R&B stars Small played with were Enchantment, Five Special, The Dramatics, Was Not Was, RJ's latest arrival, Michael Henderson, David Ruffin, and Mariah Carey. He then went on to appear on scores of West Coast gangster rap tracks, including those from Dr. Dre, Tupac, Snoop Dogg, Nate Dogg, and Corrupt. And he continues to record today. Carl, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good, Scott. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm impressed. And that's what I like about your show. You know, you go in depth, you know, truth and rhythm 
uh, goes to no length to get all the information so that when you get ready to, you know, interview somebody, you have you have all the ammunition. <laughs> well, I do what I can, you know, but uh, much respect, you know, uh, you know, been looking forward to talking to you and you've been on so many of my favorite records. So thank you for joining the show. Well, thank you, man. It's I, I, let me see, how should I put this? I uh, dedicate all of that work to being true to the music, you know, because I've had a chance. My career is still going strong to this day, and I've been doing recordings and live shows, and you know, uh, working with all the stars on the planet since I was like 18 years old. Yeah. Well, you still look like a kid. So good job, uh, you know, taking uh, care of yourself too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do a good job. I think I didn't know I was going to look this way. I think it's in the jeans, you know, you know, and, uh, and cause I'm 68 now and I'm still doing music. Uh, you know, right now I'm, uh, producing a project with the, rhythm section from death row uh it's called death squad rst that's ricky rouse the r stands for ricky rouse the s stands for carl butch small and my oldest son dj los and the t stands for sean bonnie rebel thomas the keyboardist so we're all collaborating together and, and putting a project together and and we're i think we're gonna make a very big impact you know there's so much music there man Wow, sweet. We'll look forward to that for sure. I'll be out in 2021. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, well, you know what? I think I'm going to hold it till 2022. Uh, we had started on it uh, in 2019. And when the um, pandemic came in, I said, you know what? I really want to do current music and I don't want the project to come out, you know, in the pandemic. So I think it'll be 2022. And, you know, uh, we've, uh, I did recordings over in England. I did recording work in Las Vegas, um, recording work here in Detroit and LA. And then LA, I'm gonna mix the uh, project out in LA. All right. And uh, where are you coming to us from today, Carl? I'm coming to you from Detroit. Detroit, Michigan is home for me. Although I lived in California for 20 years, that's like second home for me. But I came back from, I lived in uh, California from 1993 to 2008 and came back to Michigan in 2008 and been here ever since, you know, because I, uh, I'm a, uh, Currently, I work with the Four Tops. I'm their road manager and their percussionist, so I'm I'm constantly traveling. We do about ninety dates a year. We might have crossed paths without even knowing it because I was out there in LA until two thousand and six. So, oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I did uh, you know uh, so much work in California, film score stuff, uh, albums, concerts, you know, so. Yeah. Very nice. Well, I'm going to test your memory bank. So I hope you're ready for that. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, growing up in, uh, in Detroit uh, area and uh, what, what drew you to music and why percussion? 
Okay, well, growing up in Detroit, um, and I tell everybody, and I, I always keep it real, I'm from the hood. I mean, you can never get the substance that I have not coming from the neighborhood. And so when I was a young, I was about, say about 10, and my parents, they weren't uh, musical parents far as uh, musicians, but they were musical people that liked music. My father was a jazz enthusiast type of person, and he bought all the jazz albums. And my mother, she was more so into the soul and R&B. And uh, so in our household, we would have the best of the jazz and the best of the soul and R&B, all the latest records that would come on the number one station uh, in Detroit, which at that time was WJLB. And um, <clears throat> so I got interested in the jazz albums because um, I would take an album and play these jazz albums like, uh, ooh, wow, it was uh, Richard Groove Holmes and King Pleasure and, um, let me see, Lonnie Listening Smith. So I would read the back of these covers and read about the percussionists but I thought it was one guy playing on all the records until I started reading the credits. And see back then, the jazz uh, albums were the only ones that listed musicians on it. Uh, all the R&B and soul stuff didn't list the musicians, you know what I'm saying? But I liked what they were doing, but I never knew who they were. But on the jazz albums, I could read the credits. And then, it, you know, this is at a young age, I was saying, well, they all playing the same beat on seven, every album. And I said, they all seem to be, uh, you know, I said, if, if one person is playing, you know, and I thought it was one person, but it wasn't. And I said, well, I need to learn what I'm doing and be able to play other instruments along as well with the congas and bongos and things of that nature and become a stylist and change the game. So when I was 10 or 11 years old, I had it in my head. If I'm going to do anything musically, I wanted to be different. So that's how that started at a young age, about 10 or 11. And then I uh, went to all the Motortown reviews. I went to 1966, 67, and 68. And I was able to see groups like uh, The Temptations and Stevie Wonder and um, let me see, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas and, and you pay a dollar. And they would do four shows. This would happen around the the holiday, like Christmas, all the way past New Year's. And I would go and attend this concert maybe once or twice every year around that time to see the acts. I mean, I was able to see the Temptations when they brought out the, 
the four tier microphone stand, you know, when they did cloud nine and all of that, you know, so that, that put me really in the framework of, uh, I liked music and, um, and I, uh, at that point, uh, I had a cousin about 12 years older than me and he was like maybe about 22 and he had a pair of bongos and he would bring them over to the house and he had an Awa little tape recorder, little handheld, you know, where you can record, it was real to real. And so he would let me have his bongos for, for a while. And these bongos, you couldn't even tune them. You had to take them and put them over a flame on the stove to heat the heads so that I can get the tones out that I wanted to play. And they would only stay in tune maybe about 15 minutes. <laughs> so, uh, but that's my beginning with the music. And, uh, uh, but after that, I, I never was in a band. You know how I hear so many people say they were in a, in a band in the neighborhood. None of the guys that I grew up with were in a band. No one, I don't think no one even had instruments. No one was even talking about music. And uh, so, and uh, the only other person I knew back then in elementary school was uh, Ricky Rouse. We went, we, we knew each other from mm, maybe 10, 10 years, yeah, 10 years old, 12. Yeah, and we went to the same elementary school and we wound up getting back together in high school and leaving high school together. Uh, and, and going out on tour. But um, I didn't do any music from the time after the Motown reviews until 1970. Um, I had a Panasonic uh, Royal Air tape recorder, AM, FM, and I bought cassettes. And my cassettes that I bought was Sly and the Family Stone around 1968, um, eight, nine. Uh, and then after that, Funkadelic came out in 70. And when I heard Funkadelic, I never heard anything is that rhythmic in music in my life. So I bought their first album, Funkadelic. And uh, they happened to come to, uh, yeah, that album right there was on your wall. Uh, they happened to uh, be getting ready to appear at a, this place was called Ernie D's Campus Ballroom. This was March, I think 1970. Uh, and uh, they, uh, now the, the ballroom, this uh, DJ named Ernie D, he was like the number one DJ on the radio in Detroit on WJLB. And this ballroom had been in existence from the 1930s, but I think in the 70s, he acquired it for a while. And it was uh, like a teen type of ballroom, no alcohol, uh, soda, water, chips, hot dogs, things of that nature. And it was upstairs over top of these retail stores off of uh, Livernois and Finkel in Detroit. 
and they didn't have no air conditioning and they had all these windows that went all around the perimeter and they would raise those windows up in the summer and for the air to flow through. And I happened to see Funkadelic because I was real interested in the song, uh, uh, I Got A Thing. I heard the guitars on there and I said, I have to see the guys who played this music and let me see if they can, you know, capture that recording, you know, playing guitars. And I went to the show and this is the first time I ever seen Funkadelic and it happened to be the, the, the basic lineup. It was Bernie and Tall Ross and uh, Eddie Hazel and Tiki Fullwood and uh, George and Grady and Calvin and Ray and, you know, and Fuzzy. And they, I mean, they looked like they were from another world, another planet and the music. And they had all these custom amps all around these speakers, all around the top of the ballroom. They were like black with blue uh, covering. And uh, I said, this is, this is music. To me, that made me think of, uh, want to be involved. Uh, but um, man, my, my career is so long, man. I'm, you definitely tested my-, my Well, my that's okay. That, that was a good starting point. Let me jump in. Um, yeah. So uh, with that background that you gave, thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I can only imagine, you know, seeing Funkadelic at that point. Wow. I didn't see him, you know, until the mid seventies, but, um, you know, um, this, the seventies, you mentioned about not seeing the credits except for the jazz guys, you know, and some of those guys have been on the show. A lot of those guys, um, maybe are some of the ones that you were influenced by. I don't know, guys like Bill Summers and M2 May and, um, and Doc Gibbs and, you know, all these yeah. kind of great, great players. But, yeah, they're, uh, they're great players. They, I mean, but on, on those early, early recordings like that, I, I knew Bill Summers, uh, well, I've met Bill before. Uh, I knew his name wasn't on any of those albums or, or either uh, Doc Gibbs and all of them. And I, and my hat is off to all of those. Those are, they're like, you know, they're, they're my, uh, my fellow, percussionist musicians that have done great work, you know, um, and uh, I love all of them, you know. I met Bill Summers and it, it might've been maybe three, four years ago here in Detroit, you know what I'm saying? And we were all at a Christmas party, you know, and we got to talking and I, I loved him from the Herbie Hancock stuff, you know, and everything. So yeah, great players. Yeah. yeah. So what was the first, you know, band that you ended up being part of or played with? You know, what, what was the first one? Well, the first one was, um, this is a funny story here. Uh, I went to Cooley High School in Detroit. And uh, I had went to the talent show. And we, we do these things at the high schools, you know, every, every high school had a talent show and they'd have a day performance and an evening performance. And so I wound up going to the talent show, the day performance with my girlfriend 
my best friend, this guy named Michael Bird, and he had his girlfriend. Now we went to the auditorium and see at that point, none of my, my hangout partners knew I played music at all because I had, you know, just not even thought about being a musician. It wasn't even in the thought of my, uh, my head to be, uh, you know, a professional musician at all. And we went to the talent show and I looked up on stage and it was a set of congas up there. And so I told Michael, I said, oh, I can play them. So Michael said to me, he said, you can play what? I said, the drums, the conga drums right there. He, he said to me, if you can play them, I dare you go up there and play those drums, right? <laughs> so I looked at him, I said, you dare me? He said, yes. So I got up out of my seat. This was before the show started and walked up to the stairway on both sides of the stage and stairway and they had ROTC guys in the uniforms that, that they're supposed to stand guard there so no one can come up on the stage. So I went up to the ROTC guy and I told him, I said, you know what? I'm supposed to be on the stage um, playing with the band, you know, and everything. So he looked at me like, you know, like, okay, here's, here's one to go. And I said, and, and he looked at me and he said, okay, go ahead. And he, I guess he thought I was gonna make a fool out of myself or whatever. So I went up there and I went backstage. And so I started asking people whose drums they were, but no one, no one said anything. So show was getting ready to start. And it was a female uh, trio getting ready to go on and everything. And I don't even remember the name of the, the act or whatever, but as everybody assembled on the stage, the musicians and the female trio, no one went out to play the conga drums. So I went out and played the conga drums. And when I went out to play the songs with the, with the rhythm section, and the rhythm section was um, Eddie Watkins on bass, uh, Ricky Lawson on drums, and Ricky Rouse on guitar, myself on congas. And so we started playing these songs behind these girls. And then we all started looking at one another, like the camaraderie of musicians, like, oh yeah, I like, you know, I like what you're doing. I like what you're doing, you know what I'm saying? So we all wind up playing behind those couple of uh, acts. And then we came off the stage backstage and everybody was talking and everything. I was still asking whose drums they were. And this guy in the back said, oh, those are my drums. I said, man, I hope you don't mind that I played your drums. And he said, oh no, man, you was good. You were great. And so I asked him what his name was. And his name was John Brooks. He was in a group called Sins of Satan. And he had his drum set up because they had a self-contained group to come up and they weren't going to perform until later in the show and to this day John and I we stayed the best of friends you know he passed a couple of years ago but we always talked and you know our careers you know we he was definitely a great player and a singer and we stayed in contact and so after that little meeting of musicians we wind up going out we all left high school together. 
we probably had a month or two to graduate. None of us graduated, we left and went out on tour with Undisputed Truth. And it was their first tour and their, their goal uh, uh, album, Smiling Faces. So that was my first big uh, situation in music was going out on tour with the music, uh, Motown groups, my uh, Undisputed Truth. Yeah. You didn't mess around. Yeah, we were <laughs> dove right in, man. <laughs> yeah, we we all had music in us. You know, Detroit is a a music mecca. You know, if if I wasn't born in Detroit, I know my career wouldn't be as vast as it is, you know. So I owe it all to home. I love I love Detroit. Yeah. Wow. So how old were you when you were doing that tour with Undisputed Truth then? Oh, uh, we were about like what, 18, 19. Yeah. Yes. That was the first tour. And you, you got exposed to uh, Norman Whitfield? I met Norman just once. Um, you know, it was a brief meeting, you know, uh, but I never uh, interacted with Norman. Yeah. So what was it like being, you, it must have just been crazy, man, being out there as a teenager. and Right. Well, you know, it was... It was so new for all of us, all four of us that formed that rhythm section that went out. We all left high school together and all of us in music a major way. The only one that has passed uh, out of the four is Ricky Lawson. And, but we're all in music a major way. And when we went out on tour, oh man, and then that's my second time that I had an encounter with, with P-Funk. They were, we were on a show in Rochester, New York at the Kodak Theater. And Undisputed Truth was like a, uh, like a supporting act and P-Funk and I think it was some other act on uh, even in the middle of, of Undisputed Truth and, and P-Funk. And they had all their clothes in the dressing room, they were in a in a like a trunk <laughs> and we seen all these weird costumes and all this stuff. And that's when uh, Ricky Rouse, that was the first time he ever, he said, man, I really, I wanna work with them. You know, and Ricky wound up not working with George till 2008, but we, we had an encounter with them in 1972 um, in New York, in Rochester, yeah. Well, that's around the uh, Mercades. It's young uh, time frame. Yeah, I guess. yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was. Yes. Yeah. Free your mind. America eats its young, you know, and they had, had out the first Funkadelic album, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Still pre-parliament. Pre there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how many other groups did you play with or... Um, you know, was it your first time going in the studio before you got involved with P-Funk? Well, um, before I got involved with P-Funk, uh, when I came back off tour uh, with Undisputed Truth, we had formed a group. Uh, we named ourselves Legacy. And one of the girls, Brenda Evans, wound up marrying the bass player, Eddie Watkins. And so all of us, form legacy and and signed uh 
with uh, Don Davis, his production company. And uh, so we were working on legacy project, things like that. We, you know, and then Don, Don noticed that all of us were really skilled musicians. So Don, I have to credit Don for bringing me in the studio um, at that time. Uh, Cause he had artists like Johnny Taylor and uh, Dramatics and later on he had Enchantment. He had, um, he was doing projects on Albert King and uh, Billy Davis and Marilyn McCoo. So this was all at United and Don owned United Sound Studio, you know, which made it all the better. So I would get in the studio and never leave. I was working on every artist and working with all the, the uh, writers, the songwriters that were under contract to Don Davis uh, Groovesville Productions. I would work on all the demos over at the uh, other uh, facility on uh, Wyoming and Puritan. Yeah, and that was Groovesville Productions where they would demo out the songs and then what songs would make it to be for what artist and we would re-record these songs at United. Um, so my career in the beginning was all about learning, working with different producers and, uh, and then just paying attention, you know, and, and, bringing, and bringing what I could bring to the table. What, what was Davis like? How would you describe him? Oh, he, he, Don was like, you know, Don was kind of laid back, quiet, always observing and was a producer and he played guitar. And so he would hire the best musicians. See, uh, we had people, oh man, Don would have Earl Van Dyke, uh, he would have all the drummers from, from uh, Motown, Pistol, uh, Uriel Jones, uh, he had uh, Bruce Nazarian. See, I met all these, all these musicians. We all came up together working on a lot of projects. And so we were sort of like, sort of like what the Funk Brothers were and over at United. Uh, after Motown had left Detroit. So we were on, you know, just uh, with Dennis Coffey, all of us, we all really uh, joined in together uh, with uh, musicianship in Detroit. And Don was, you know, I mean, everybody looked at Don like he owns a studio, you know, then he had a record label called Tortoise Records and Legacy and the Rockets, we had the first releases on the, on the label. But I think the deal, something happened with the distribution deal with RCA, with his label. But uh, Don was a businessman. He wound up buying a bank, the first black bank in Detroit, you know, first independence bank, you know. But United was the studio where everybody would come in contact with one another. And so, I wound up doing uh, Johnny Taylor uh, and I played on Disco Lady, but the rhythm was already laid. So I did an overdub, I did the tambourine overdub on that. And not knowing 
who the rhythm section was on the song. And it was the most funkiest song that Johnny Taylor had done, you know, and uh, come to find out that on the rhythm, it was Bernie, it was Bootsy, <laughs> it was uh, Glenn Goins on guitar, and it was uh, Zachary Slater on drums who had came in and out of Funkadelic way back before Tiki had got there. Um, and uh, so that was my third, uh, about my third encounter with Parliament Funkadelic, not knowing that I was gonna become part of the P-Funk family. Uh, but, you know, that, I think it was destined to happen because I was, I'm here at United and this is where everything comes together is at United Sound. What, what would you say was sort of like the signature of your style? You know, how'd you approach percussion? Well, I, I always approach percussion um, by uh, sound and trying to create and using dis different instruments and different techniques. Um, <clears throat> you know, I have uh, so many different sets of things. I got about three sets of congas and they're all different. They all have different timbre. And I have about four sets of bongos, you know, like, like on Enchantment, uh, I did It's You That I Need, the, their biggest record. And uh, everybody was trying to say, what bongos are those? What tone are those bongos? You know, they're my Slingerland bongos. They're called deep hand bongos. And they got the plastic heads on them and the wood in frame and the chrome body and they're long. And so um, I would always try to uh, approach a percussion playing like a bass player or a drummer or a guitarist. I wanted to have, you know, that space. I would fit in between the drums and the bass and have the sound and the power, you know, that's another thing, you know, when, when it comes to percussion, you have to have the power in order to bring the, the tones out of those instruments. And I would do, do all different type things. I would play percussion and do this thing I called uh, like miscellaneous percussion, where you would have all these different sounds jumping out at you. And I'm, I'm more than a percussionist because I'm an engineer and I, and I produce and I, and I mix. So I know what microphones to use on, on all the instruments for them to become, you know, just there, you know, so that they stick out and you can, you can say, wow, what is that sound? What is that? How did he come up with that? So the creative part of, of what I do is what the creator gave me to do. He said, this is all you're going to ever do. This is it. Yeah. So it sounds like you're very dialed into sort of the whole sonic landscape. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, as far as, you know, even hand claps, I created these boards and I use a Mutron 3 and get hand claps and, and they'd be big. You know, it's people, I used to do songs for people and I just only do the hand claps because that's all it would need. You know, I do stuff for Michael Henderson. People would call me up, say, but can you come and do the, he would call them the big booty hand claps and stuff. And I did them on wire receiver and slingshot and 
things of that nature and, and geek you up, you know. So, you know, I've, I've, I've been blessed to do a lot of uh, just creating, you know. And they, I get called, sometimes producers have beat and had a song for a year and they've lived with it. And somehow or another, it's just not quite the whole picture. And they would call me and I would come and paint that picture. And they'd be like, that's it, you know? So a lot of times I can read music, you know, they'll give you basic parts, you know, reading music, but when it comes down to the rhythms of, of the drums or different instruments that I'm gonna use, cause you know, percussionist has an array of instruments, maybe about 70 instruments. And you have to be conscious of what what you think is going to work on a, you know, on a particular song, body of music. So did you have some training then to read music or you just picked that up on your own? No, I just picked it up on my own. I mean, it was there. I didn't even know when I was coming up young, 10, 11, that I had that, you know, I wasn't even focused on it. You know, I, I, I really didn't think about being a musician because I wasn't in any bands coming up young. There was no bands in my neighborhood that anybody talked about trying to form a band at a young age. And so out of high school, from high school till now, it's been recording and, uh, live concerts yeah so carl what were a couple of the most colorful or interesting musicians or characters that you encountered before george clinton um i would have to say um the funk brothers um their style uh, and they they were real they were jazz musicians but they had their own sound and own unique way of, of just being a unit. I remember my first <laughs> recording session with uh, Earl Van Dyke and Eddie Willis. Uh, it was myself and, and Eddie Watkins. And uh, I think it was uh, Uriel Jones on drums. And Don had called us because we were working on these songs at United. I think we were probably working on songs for maybe uh, dramatics or somebody. And he called me and Eddie to be part of the rhythm with them. And uh, so when we walked in the back door of United, and we were young, we were like, ooh, maybe 20 or so. And so when we walked in the back door at United, <laughs> and Earl looked at us and said, Oh, we're gonna be here all day, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> we were young and they were they were older, and they didn't think we would be able to handle what what was getting ready to happen. But once we got in the studio, I unloaded my gear, came in, and Eddie came in, and we all, you know, Rudy Robinson wrote out the rhythm charts, and we all started. We I think we did about five songs that day, and uh, by the time we were through. Uh, and see Don could see us coming in the back door through the uh, control room, through the glass. And he was smiling, right? Cause he knew that Earl and them was gonna like take offense of us being so young to come and round out the session. But once we got started 
and start laying down the songs and we start going through it and everything and things getting recorded and we go back in the control room and listen. And then they said, uh, he told Don, you can bring them back anytime. So that we had got, if we had been intimidated because the studio is like a torture chamber, really, it's the lab and you try to do your best performances. And if you don't come across in the studio, you know, it's, it's not gonna happen for you, yeah. And Earl Young, man, God bless him. He's still going pretty strong oh, yeah, or yeah. whatever. Yeah, Earl, Earl is 80. And uh, I, uh, I love all the things that he did because he, he reminds me of myself. You know, we, we, you know, we go out there and we, we put ourselves, put our soul into what we do, how we play, you know, and we're not like anybody else. And Earl is like that. He's been my favorite drummer for many years because he he started the disco, you know, the four and the floor. Um, he did the OJs, you know, he's did so many, I mean, the Soul Train theme. And see, I get to do all those type of things as well. So his, his catalog is about his, uh, his would be bigger than mine because he's 80 and I'm 68, but I'm, I'm on like, 28 platinum yeah like 25 platinum albums and four gold you know so and earl's got about 50 you know what i'm saying so we i'm i'm just like earl you know i can go to the mailbox i got checks <laughs> you know <laughs> so that, that makes it really and you get to hear yourself on the radio like uh in the course of a day i might hear four four or five songs that I'm on, you know, and the classics, you know, like Clark Sisters, You Brought the Sunshine. And I remember when Twinkie told us in the studio that she wanted to do something like Stevie Wonder. And uh, we all said, oh, we can do that. And, you know, and a lot of songs, I, I, I wind up starting the songs off, you know, myself, uh, which is a, which is very unique sometimes when it, when the percussion starts the songs off because you know like enchantment it's you that i need they didn't know you know they they wanted something they didn't know what they needed there mike stokes said man he said we, so we was in the studio and i said you know uh, the owner of the studio this was sound suite studio his name was john lewis so john came out in the studio with me john used to be an engineer over at motown so he said he said, Butch, why don't you, you know, you know how they used to do a bongo thing like on Calypso or something like that? I said, yeah. He said, why don't you try that? I said, okay. So I started out at it and they recorded it and everybody in the control room said, that's it. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, things sometimes it's like, you know, you try to come up with what you think would work and, um, you know, you go for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. The whole vibe of that song. Oh yeah. 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 I'm, I'm playing uh Beltry on that song and bongos throughout the song until it gets down to the, uh, to the vamp, to the bridge. And I'm playing congas at that point, but yeah, it's, it set that whole song up, you know, and, and, that worked. It really worked. I, I like enchantment. 
I did yeah. Silly Love Songs too, you know. I, well, I did all their albums except for the first one, Gloria. Uh, I didn't do the uh, album with Gloria on it, but all the rest of their albums. Yeah, It's You That I Need. Yeah. 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 Yeah, great stuff. Um, so then during the mid-70s, were you pretty much all about the studio and you weren't going out on tour at all, or were you still playing live also? Well, I was... Uh, more so in the studio and then I could go out on tour with almost anybody because I'm on uh, almost everybody's records that were recorded in Detroit, you know? Uh, and uh, so I would do some live shows. Some people would have a big concert coming up at the Fox, you know, and, and their hit record is, you know, and I'm on their hit record. So they asked me, can you do this? You know, can you do the show? And I said, yeah. So I, I got a chance to um, stay stationary in Detroit and still perform live in the big venues in Detroit, you know, cause I, I, I worked with Aretha. I don't work with so many people, man. It's, it's like unreal. Um, and then uh, when I was doing all the dramatic stuff, then I wind up starting to go out on tour with the Dramatics when they was like super hot, you know, when they had songs like Be My Girl and Shake It Well and um, uh, what else we do, Dramatic Theme and Me and Mrs. Jones, you know, so, so uh, I started going more, a little more out on tour, but I would always be still, uh stationary in the studio and doing records on everybody you know so there's so many groups then i mean most of the funk bands then had mad percussion i mean when you're looking at you know war or mantle yeah. or earth wind and yeah. fire oh yeah you know i mean it was just yeah. a golden era of not only funk but also percussion sure yeah and then and then when disco came in oh man i was driving from detroit to Cleveland to New York, you know, doing Wild Cherry, you know, play the funky music white boy. Uh, and and back and forth, you know, I was doing stuff for Carl Maduri in Cleveland. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it was just like disco has so much percussion in it. Everybody wanted to do it. I did Keith Barrels albums. I did so many different disco albums as well as funk and, and, but, and R&B. You know, but um, Detroit, I did Al Hudson and my way, you know, I was, I was doing everybody, man. <laughs> yeah. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.